Hector. Thank you, brother. Thank you for those that serve with you. Thank you for those that take up our offering. As I already mentioned before, I'm so grateful you're here this morning, but uh, I hope when you came in, that not only you got a bulletin, but you have a Bible, something that you can open up, that you can join me in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. On the back of that bulletin, if you would like, there'll be some fill-in-the-blank notes if you would like to use those during our time together in the Word. So Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be at in a few moments. If I was to ask you, how would you define the word great? G-R-E-A-T. If you were to sit down and you were trying to craft a definition for what do you define as great. The dictionary would say something like this. Someone or something that is highly significant. Something that is exceptional. Exceptionally outstanding. Something that is wonderful. Something that is good. There's a lot of desires in this world today to be great. You will find self-help books. You will find motivational books that talk about how to be great. There's podcasts that you can get on chasing greatness and all these ways that you can be great at your job. You can be great at home. You can be great in your relationships. You can be great in academics. You can be great, 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 great. Primarily in the world of athletics, there's even conversations about people they call the GOAT. Now, GOAT is not always, to me, the most friendly, um, endearing term, but they have this idea in athletics primarily that you are a GOAT, the greatest of all time. So there's these desires out there, and there, I think, even within this room, in every single one of us, maybe not you, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, but definitely in my heart, there's the desire to be great. A great husband, a great father, a great brother, a great son, a great uncle, even a great pastor. There's a desire to be great. And as I've looked at this text this week, I, I, I can't help but think about there's probably more than just me in the room that says, I would like to be great at something. And it might be a profession, it might be athletics, it might be success in business, it might be in home, it might be in the eyes of the world. I don't know what it may be for you, but I think deep down inside, there's some part of every single one of us that says, I want to be great. Let me set the context here for Mark chapter 1. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. and He's having a hard time in ministry and he sends two disciples. And he sends them to Jesus and he asks the question, Are you the one to come or are we to wait on another? And Jesus tells the messengers that John the Baptist sent, said, Hey, tell John what the miracles you're seeing. Yes, tell John, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And then the two messengers leave, and all those people that are surrounding Jesus are saying, Hey, you know, does that mean that John is not what we think John was? Does that mean that John isn't who we thought John was in the terms of his faith and his following after you? And you can go to Luke chapter 7, or you can go to Matthew chapter 11, and you will find two parallel passages where Jesus then looks at those that are gathered around him that are left and he says this statement 
to them. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Jesus points to John the Baptist and said he is the greatest that has ever been born of woman. How do you get that kind of title from Jesus? How do you get that kind of standing from Jesus? Well, Mark chapter 1, where I hope you have found your way to, starting in verse 4 and working down through verse 8, we get Mark's account. Now, Mark is considered to be uh, the nephew of Barnabas. He is one of the ones that was with Paul and one of the ones that was with Peter. He was one of the ones that followed around in those early days of ministry. They think that it's John Mark that wrote the gospel of Mark. And so he not only did have a, a firsthand account of what was going on, but he gives us this gospel account of Jesus. Now he is writing primarily to the Romans and so it's not necessarily meant to be for the Jews or for the church or other. Luke um, is writing to the Gentiles. He has this idea so it is brief. It is very quick as far as in the timeline and how he walks through with this. But in Mark chapter 1 he skips the birth narrative of Christ and he jumps straight to the ministry of John the Baptist. And I have us here this morning, and I ask that you would then look at this text with me this morning, because I think as we are heading up towards the end of this year, and even into the future, there's a desire that we want to be great. The question is, is how do we define greatness? And I put there in the top of your notes that greatness is often a matter of perspective. And we are consumed right now in this world with having ideas that this means greatness and that means greatness and that equals greatness and this is how I know when I've achieved greatness and yet you come into the example here in Mark and you get a picture of a man of a man that did not was not concerned about himself he was only concerned about Jesus and because of his life Jesus then later says about him that he was the greatest born of woman. Let me try to point this, plate this, or set this out in front of you a little clear. Mark chapter 1 and verse 4. I want you to follow along as I read aloud. Well, let's read verse 4 down through verse 8 and then looks back at this example that John gave us of what greatness looks like. It says in verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for, for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him or being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. So right here, Mark gives us an account, and he says, okay, this is what John the Baptist was doing. This is what John the Baptist did. This was what was so special about John the Baptist that Jesus would later say of him that he was the greatest man ever born of Woman. So what is it that we can learn from the example of John the Baptist that we might then apply to our lives today if we want to be 
great. First thing I want you to notice there in your notes is that the method that John the Baptist had, the method that he had. If you look back in verse 4, it says that he appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now, the wording there is kind of clunky and the translators have a hard time taking it from the Greek into English in a way that flows and in a way that makes sense. What he's saying is, is that What John came to do is he came to tell people that God is your creator and you are held accountable before this God and you have sinned before this God and there is a judgment for sin. He, In other words, he's coming and he's telling them the truth. It says in verse 4, he said he is baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. He is coming and he is telling them God is real, God is sovereign, and you are held accountable by that God. Now, the language there in verse 4 and verse 5, you say, well, this baptism of repentance, what does that look like? He's coming to them and he's telling them you have sinned before God and you need to repent of your sins before God. And those individuals are sitting there going, yes, okay, so I know that I need to repent of my sins. And he says, but then let's take it into this step further and demonstrate the contrition of your heart. Demonstrate the repentance in your heart through the act of baptism. There's some people that will look at this passage and say, so see, you get baptized in order to be forgiven of your sins. Well, that's not exactly the way the language is there in the original. What the idea is, is that you are getting baptized as a demonstration of your contrition and of your repentance towards God. Let me see if I can put it to you like this. You can say, Spence, you're overweight. And I can say, absolutely, I am overweight. I need to do something about it. And you say, okay, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to go lose weight. And you're like, great, go lose weight. And I go into the gym. Is going into the gym going to make me lose weight? It might help. It's a good first step. But it's not going to make me lose weight just because I walked into the gym. So what John the Baptist is doing, John the Baptist is looking at him and saying, if you are repentant in your heart, one of the ways that you can demonstrate this and one of the ways that you can follow this and one of the ways that you can show your repentance in front of all the people is through the act of baptism. Then you fast forward into this New Testament sense and we still use the baptism except for it's used to say, this is who identify with Christ. But the idea was during that time where John the Baptist is baptizing and even Jesus comes to be baptized the idea was they recognized I am a sinner in the eyes of God I'm repenting of my sin and one of the ways that I make a public declaration of who I am and whose I am is through baptism so what John is coming here in this first portion in these first few verses here in Mark chapter 1 is he's coming to tell them. He's coming to tell them that they are held accountable before God. And it's not necessarily the sins of their brother, their mother, their father, or whoever in their life. They are accountable to God for themselves. So John, he comes out of the wilderness. Now, you can go back to Luke chapter 1 and you can get the whole lineage of who John the Baptist was and his mama being Elizabeth and his dad being Zachariah. And there is a rich story there. But the idea is that he comes out of this wilderness Live, living, 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 living this more of aesthetic lifestyle. And he comes out to tell people, don't look at me. I got something to sell you. I got some new idea. He comes out of the wilderness to tell people God is real. He comes out of the wilderness to point people to God. 
If you get this language here in verse 4 and verse 5, he's not coming out talking about himself. He's not promoting some type of an organization. He's not promoting um, some type of an idea, some type of a culture. He's not promoting anything socially or culturally. He's coming out of the wilderness to point people to God. And you know, we can do a lot of things with our lives, brothers and sisters. We can do a lot of things with our talents. We can do a lot of things with our abilities. But how much of it do we use to point people to God? Oh, I may point them to myself. I may point them to some type of a hobby. I may point them to some type of a possession. I may point them in a lot of different directions. But how much of my life points people to God? We spend a lot of time and we invest a lot of effort into pointing people to things of this world and too little pointing people to the things of God. And John comes out of the wilderness and his whole message is, I have not come here to tell you I have found a great watering hole just over the horizon. He doesn't come out of the wilderness to say, hey, I've got some new revelation. i got some new idea that I want to share with you. He doesn't come out of the wilderness saying, look at me. I, I know who my dad is and who my mom is and who I'm related to. Hey, look at me. God has given me this special message and this new revelation that no one knows except for me. He comes out of the wilderness to tell them that God has found them wanting. So he comes out of the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And then notice in verse 5, it says all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. You know, when you think about some of the message that you hear from some of the churches or from the speakers around there, a lot of times people will try to craft it so that it is catchy, so that it's rememberable, and they'll try to put it in sound bites, and they try to craft their speaking and their messages, and now one of the phrases is, a talk. I'm going to give a talk. And so they try to craft these talks where people are engaged and the people are liking them, and it's all about trying to tickle the ears of the listener. I realize that sometimes... I realize that sometimes it's the speaker's responsibility to communicate to the listener. But I also realize sometimes that the speaker can put so much effort into trying to please the listener that they lose sight of the message. They lose sight of what they have to say. John comes out of the wilderness. He's preaching repentance. He's preaching forgiveness of sins. He's preaching people turning from themselves, turning from their lifestyles. He's preaching all of this, and it says all the country of Judea, which would be similar to what we think about Lincoln County, Oklahoma, all of the county, all of Wellston are going out to him. It wasn't because it was popular. It's because the unction of God was upon the message of God. And sometimes we try to think in the church today, I need to say something or say it in such a way that you will like it and you will want to listen to it. And we lose sight of the fact that what it means to be great is just to tell people that Jesus saves. God created them. God loves them. They have sinned before God and Jesus has come so they might be forgiven of their sins. And why don't we let the unction of God come upon the message of God and let that be what reaches people? So he says, here's the method. The method is, I'm just going to talk about God. I'm just going to point people to God. And it says, all of Judea and all of Jerusalem were coming and being baptized by him. 
So he gives us this example, this example of what it means to be great in the methodology. Then he also gives us an example of what it, be, what it means to be great there in verse, verse 6 by his model. Notice the model that he lived. It says in verse 6, he was clothed with camel's hair. Now this wasn't fine linen. It wasn't the expensive clothing garments of the day. This was one of the cheapest ways of clothing you can go. Just camel's hair with a leather belt. It's not exactly the most uppity. It is not exactly the nicest. It is not the most fashionable. It is not the most, what do they call that, chic? It is not the most way to go about it. He comes out and obviously you look at him and go, he doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any means. He definitely doesn't have any style ideas. He needs somebody to dress him and make him look the part. But he comes out and he says, you know what? I am not here because of what I own. I am not here because of what I have. I am here because of whose I am. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we find ourselves in a place in this world that our possessions possess us. So we become a slave as they talk about a slave to the lender. We become in a position in life where next thing you know, I've got to go to work because I have all this debt. And I have all this debt because I have all these desires. And I have all these desires because I have all these misplaced priorities. And because I have misplaced priorities, now I have desires. And now my desires cost me money. And now my money costs me debt. And now i got to go to work to pay for the debt. And it's all this cycle there. And the only person that's smiling about it is the person making money off of you. So when John the Baptist comes out, the model that he is showing them is that he is not possessed by his possessions. He doesn't have anything. He has one garment of camel's hair. It says there in verse 6. He has one leather belt around him. It doesn't give us any indication that he had flocks or herds or he had a nice big jacked up pickup or he had a nice big boat or a nice big house. He just comes out of the desert and he had been in the desert eating what? Grasshoppers and honey. And yet this guy is reaching an entire city, an entire country with the message of God. Sometimes we think that we have to have this fancy clothes. Sometimes we think that we have to have this fancy sanctuary. Sometimes we think we have to have noise amplification. Sometimes we think we've got to have the, the heat and air working just right. And we think we have to have this and we think we have to have that. And you get a man, he comes out of the desert, he's barely clothed, he's barely eating, he's malnourished and he comes out and all he wants to do is talk about God and the people hear it and their hearts are pricked and next thing you know they're turning to God by the droves. Why? Because he modeled. He didn't just come and say, oh, give your heart to God. Why go back to my fanciness? He didn't say, give your heart to God. Why you pursue a lot of other things? No, John was content with being consumed by his calling. He was content with being consumed by his calling. Yes, his father was one of the high priests. In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 1, his father was one of the high priests that went in and offered the offering on the Day of Atonement. That was a big thing. That was a big reward. That was a prestigious place to be and yet John says if you're going to follow after God then you're going to leave everything to follow him if you're 
totally consumed about eternity in heaven, then you're not so consumed with the possessions here on this earth. In other words, when you look at verse 6, you see a man that pursued devotion, not desire. He wasn't concerned about, well, I got to have this fancy iPhone, and I got to have this fancy possession, and I got to have this fancy tool, and I got to have this fancy comfort thing. He says, no, 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 no. I am going to do nothing but follow after God. You want, I wonder sometimes when we're looking at this world around us that they see us and they go, you're nothing, you're, you're nothing like what we see in the Bible because you look just like us. And if we're to be honest, the pace of our life, the prosperity of our lives, and the pleasures of our life have not been as spiritually enriching as we thought they would. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, Greg's father was speaking. And I don't know how he is and what is he in his late 30s, something like that. Older man, but I remember he, he made a statement. He said something about that when he, when he was around his 40s, he was just way too busy. And now he looks back 30 years later and he goes, oh, I was just way too busy. I, I wish I wouldn't have been so busy at my 40s. Well, I'm there. And I'll admit to you that I'm too busy. But here's my question. What do you not do? How do you slow down? What do you say no to? How do you slow down? I've told some of you before that I think so far in this lifetime, I have learned that it's a whole lot easier to speed up than it is to slow down. And I think sometimes in our daily lives, whether it's me or whether it's you here this morning, we find ourselves and we're so frantically living life and the pace is so much that we don't have margin, we don't have time, and we're just going and going and going and going and going and the pace and then the prosperity because we have a little bit of money and we think we got to spend money and we think we need something newer, something bigger, and something better. And the next thing you know, we find ourselves doing all of these things and then we don't find ourselves any more spiritually enriched. Than someone that has nothing and is a pauper. John comes out of the desert. He comes out of the desert and he doesn't come with a fancy entourage. He doesn't come out with all the money and the success in the eyes of the world. He comes out and he just simply says, I have spent all of this time living for God. I'm in a class right now. We are studying the patristics. The patristics are those individuals from about 200 A.D. to about 800 A.D. These are the church fathers that lived. And when they were living there, and you're having to read this history of what they call the patristics, and you're reading about them, and many of them lived a very isolated lifestyle. They understood that one of the dangers was is being right in the middle of everything, how the distractions and the noise and the pace would keep them from being able to focus on God. So they withdrew from much of society so they could sit back, they could pray, they could meditate, they could read, they could study, and they could contemplate on the Word of God. And yet in our world today, we think that if you're not busy, then you're just not doing it right. John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness and he says, here's what I'm doing. I'm more concerned with the heart of God than the happiness of myself. I am more concerned with the voice of the Lord 
than the noise of this world. I am more concerned with making sure that I am fully devoted to the work that God has called me to and not so much concerned about my contentment, my satisfaction, my happiness, or my personal desires. In other words, John comes out of the wilderness to say, I can talk to you about living for God because I am living for God. But then this last one in verse 7. And he preached. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. So not only does John give us an example of his method, telling people they're a sinner, telling people they need to be saved, telling people that they're going to answer to God one day. We also see that John gives us his model. This is how he lived his life. It was all about the glory, and it was all about the, the name of God. But then he also has... A message. What's his message? His message is, it's not a matter of me. Can you imagine John? All of Judea is coming out to him. All of Jerusalem is coming out to him. John doesn't sit back and say, we need to build a new building. He doesn't come out and say, we need to hire staff. He doesn't come out and say, I need to have a TV show. He doesn't come out and say, I need to get on the radio. He doesn't come out and say, I need a pay raise. He doesn't come out and say, I need something else. He doesn't even take credit for what is going on. And yet so many times we start looking around saying, hey, I want to take the credit. I want the, I want the acknowledgments. And now in the world today, especially in the church world, you get to be some hotshot preacher and you start writing books. And then you start getting on television shows. And then you start getting on podcasts. And then you start getting all this fame and all this attention. When, and the reality, you didn't do anything. God did it through you. So John is there, and you can just imagine, I can just imagine in my mind. Verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. And then in verse 7, he says, after me comes he who is mightier than I. John says, it's not about me, and all you're doing right now is not about me. His message was, the Savior is coming. The message was, the Savior is coming. So he says in verse 7, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap is whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That idea of taking the sandal off was held for the lowliest, the most junior, the worst of the worst when it comes to the slaves. Why? Because most of the time they ran around in sandals. And they didn't run in sandals on gravel. They didn't run around in sandals on pavement. They didn't run around in sandals where it's nice and clean. They were in the mud. They were in the manure. They were in the muck. They were in the mire. And so when they come back, it was always the lowliest of the Lowe's slaves to take off their shoes and to wash their feet. And John the Baptist says, I am so much lower compared to Jesus Christ, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He doesn't say, you know what, we're related. You know, he does a little baptizing, I do a little baptizing. You know, we're both working for the same creator. He doesn't come in and say, well, you know what, maybe I could share with him some followers. Maybe I could share to some disciples. Or, you know what, Jesus is just now coming up through the ranks. Maybe I should kind of mentor him and give him some pointers and kind of give him, show him the ropes. John says, you don't understand how much other the Savior is. You know, there's people that we can relate to. And there's people that we can sometimes think, well, that's a pretty cool person. That's somebody I would like to meet. Like a president. A 
president of the United States. I don't care whether they're a donkey. I don't care whether they're an elephant. I just think it would be really cool to meet a president of the United States. We don't have to agree politically. Just the fact that you were what I consider to be the most powerful person in the United States for a given period of time, I think is a pretty cool deal. And I think it would be really cool to meet that person one day, have an opportunity just to say, I have met a president of the United States. I would think that would be amazing. But, you know, at the end of the day, that person, whoever he is, Maybe someday she, whoever that person is, they're human just like me. They're sinful just like me. They get hungry just like me. They go to the bathroom just like me. And what John is saying, but when it comes to the Messiah, he's just not like you. He's sinless. He's holy. He's other. He's the Son of God. He's the one that paid for your sins. He's the one that's sitting at the right hand of the Father even at this moment. He is not just like you. And so John says, I, in the little way that I can, want to try to make this analogy as clear as I can that Jesus is so much greater than me that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. So his message is the Savior is coming and Jesus is the Savior. He's wanting to remind them and wanting to point them to, do you understand who this is? is. I can see on some of your faces right now that you have very little appreciation for who Christ is. I I, I can see it on your faces. You're like, I know who it is intellectually, but many of you have not caught who it is emotionally, spiritually, eternally. Some of you may be in this room and you might be thinking, I'm going to earn my way to salvation. Or you know what, I've checked off a box. Or I'm good enough. Or you think more of yourself than you should and you think less of Christ than you should. John comes in and he has no allusions to who he is and who Christ is. And he understands who he is and he understands who Christ is. You go back to John chapter 1 and as John is sitting there with the the disciples. I'm sorry, John the Baptist is sitting there with the disciples. It, it, It says that Jesus walked by and he pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God. He knew who Jesus was and he was pointing people to Jesus. Later on in John chapter 3, there's this discussion. Jesus, who is greater? John the Baptist, who is greater? And John tells you in John chapter 3 and verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. He makes it clear all throughout the Gospels. John the Baptist says, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. So when you and I come into this season of Thanksgiving, who's it about? You and I come into this season of Christmas, who's it about? When you and I have success in the eyes of this world, you and I have pleasure in the eyes of this world, you and I are tested in the, in the throes and in the pace of this world, when all of this comes, who is the greatest? So how is John great in the eyes of Christ? He understood the effect that sin has on the spirit. He understood the effect that sin has on the spirit. 
See, he comes in verse 4 and verse 5, and he's telling them about the danger of sin. He's telling them about the effect of sin. He's telling them about how sin will affect their spirit. Yeah, they had the Old Testament. Yes, they had Moses. Yes, they had their traditions. Yes, they had all these things telling them, this is what you're supposed to do. But John understood that when it comes to the spirit of a person, when that sin takes, and when you don't address the sin, and when you don't deal with the sin, and when you don't do something with the sin that is taking root in your life, that sin will have have an effect on your spirit. And it's on the Baptist times, it was driving them away from God. It was driving them towards legalism. It was driving them towards hypocrisy. And it was driving them towards ineffectiveness for the kingdom of God. And he understood that sin affects your spirit. Which is why it's not for me to go around to your house and to tell you all the little sins that you have in your life. It's not for me to go around and try to tell you that this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this is right. I just want to give you a warning. The sin that you and I have in our lives affects our spirit. There is no such thing as a sin that is present in our lives today that doesn't have any effect on us. Every single bit of it will affect us. So there's no secret sin, there's no little sin, there's no... I always get benign and malignant backwards. There is no innocent sin. It's always one of those things that sin affects us. So John the Baptist understood. John the Baptist understood the effect the sin has. He also understood the seductiveness of success. He understood that success is seductive. That's why in verse 6, he had gone down to the desert. He said, I'm not worried about, I'm not worried about trying to chase business. I'm not worried about trying to chase possessions. I'm not worried about trying to chase all the things this world considers to be important. I want to chase after God. And sometimes we get busy thinking that we've got to be successful. Or that success looks like this, and we're trying to please people that don't matter. Are doing things that God never called us to do. And then finally, the last thing that John teaches us is that greatness is not the goal. John never set out to be great. You never find any place where John said, I am going to be the greatest forerunner. I'm going to be the greatest type of Elijah. I am going to one day be referred to by Jesus as the greatest that has ever been born a woman. That was never John's intention. John's intention was never to be someone of prominence, never to be someone of some type of prestige. Rather, his goal was to be faithful. And sometimes we spend a lot more time in this world trying to be known or liked, or popular, when all we should be doing is trying to be faithful. Give up the idea for trying to be great. Give up the idea for trying to be known. Give up the idea for trying to be popular. And just say, today I want to be faithful. So here's where it comes down to us. How do you define greatness? How do you define greatness? In the football world, they'll define it as your record, win-loss record. In the business world, they'll define it by the amount of money you own. In your world, you may define it by the pieces of paper you have on the wall. You may define it by the number of children you have around the dinner table. You might define it by the number of people that you have on social media. You might define it by the number of people that compliment you or think well of you. 
How do you define greatness? How does this church define greatness? Is greatness two services? New building? More chairs? Bigger budgets? How does this church define greatness? My concern is that for too many of us individually and for too often corporately, we begin to define greatness by the standards of this world and not by the presence of God. And this morning, church, I want to challenge you to think, what does it mean to be great? And what does it look like to be great in front of a watching world? If you bow your heads with me.